Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and today's episode features Ryan Brown. She's a graduate student at Rice University studying psychology, and she's also passionate about science communication. She has her own YouTube channel and does some great explainers of scientific publications. I recommend you check it out. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Kendall Investor Relations. And if you've been enjoying our content so far, please click subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Ryan is a graduate student at Rice University studying psychology and specifically how relationships help us navigate stress. She also started a YouTube channel called Ryan's Science and is passionate about science communication. Her channel features a show called Sci-T, and she also has these great primers on explaining certain publications in the psychology space. Ryan, very excited to have you on Lady Scientist Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for the invite. I'm excited, and I I've watched the I've watched y'all's show for a year for for a while now, and it's um, it's been awesome to see just the different examples as well of the people that you've had on before. Yeah, yeah, I think we. We might have gotten our start around the same time. You started your show last year, correct? Yeah. Yeah, okay, exactly. Cool. Similar timing. Yeah. So it's been fun to see the people who are like com- kind of coming up together with all with the different like media. Um, yeah. And this is like my first kind of cross collaboration, if you will, in this space, which is really fun. And it's also yeah. my like one year anniversary of doing the podcast. So I'm excited. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like my very oh, my first interview was October 18th. So it's almost. Oh, that's great. That's my birthday. (laughs) When, when did you officially start yours? So it's, um, so I officially started the YouTube channel on, um, on about like around father's day of 2020, but I didn't start posting until maybe like a month or two later, maybe like two months later. Cause it took a little bit just to get up the nerve. Um, once I had sort of, I, once I kind of committed to it and then as I'm sure you have experienced too, just figuring out, um, all the technology pieces and just like editing and all of the different, like literally just how am I going to film this? And those kinds of things, uh, took a little bit to get off the ground. Sure. And what was the initial like inspiration for wanting to do your YouTube channel? Yeah, I, it was a combination of a couple of things, obviously the, the timing of pandemic and just seeing like a lot of misinformation and a lot of just questioning of like, where are people getting sources and things like that. Um, and then seeing how I was really starting to see people doing more psychom. So um, like Raven, the science maven, lots of just incredible, like the, like science music as well was really um, inspirational to me. And so I think that just having, um, I was on bereavement leave when I started it. So I was, I was also just sort of trying to get back connected to like the pieces that make me really excited about the kind of work that we do. And a lot of that I felt like distant from, which trying to actually explain it in a way that people can connect with helps me feel a lot more connected to the work that I'm actually doing and how it can impact other people other than just like myself and my own career trajectory, which is really boring to think about. So it's a lot more fun to think about like how we can engage other people in that kind of work. Awesome. I wanted to ask just for our listeners sake, what your PhD program is like, like what are kind of the components that make it up and, you know, do you have a qualifying exam? How does you know, what are your teaching requirements and um, how long does it typically take students to complete the process? 
So, so in my program, the normal amount of time is about five to seven years. And I would say probably six years really is the, the average there. And teaching wise, we rice is unique because they don't allow students to teach. They don't really encourage graduate students to teach very much. And you don't have that option until after you have your master's. And so my master's was really delayed by the pandemic. So I'm in my fifth year now, and I just finished my master's this over the summer, even though I'm doing dissertation stuff as well. So I really was in this unique place of when the pandemic hit and realizing, oh, you're really going to be delayed for finishing up. I had a couple of people to collect data from at that point. And so I was like, okay, well, how can I practice teaching without you know, being in a classroom and, and it was uh, science communication videos and just wanting to practice at least the, the, the things I know are very core to what I'm studying that I know I need to practice and be good at communicating that I didn't really have any evidence that I w- would be or was good at communicating outside of like conferences with people who already know what you're talking about. So that was, uh, that was within my program, the, the impetus. And then the other piece is that we, we do get the opportunity to TA. So that's sort of the, the teaching experience is more, um, dependent on what the person you're TAing for needs out of a TA. So like I get to do guest lectures and things like that, but it's not the prep your whole course, really teach everything that you would be teaching experience. I see. And so the master's component, is that similar to like a qualifying exam where it's kind of usually midway through? Do you have to do any kind of presentation or how does that work? Yeah. And uh, Rice doesn't have any qualifying exams. So it's the the sort of qualifying component is really determined by your advisor and you. And so, so it's more individualized for what your needs are at that point. And so the, our master's is, is very much just an independent project that you do a proposal for, you do a defense for, and it is a mini dissertation basically to, to get to that point. So mine was, um, Mine was focused on, um, again, sort of bereavement, which is a, a, the time after the death of a spouse is a lot of the, the research that I've been doing. And so the, the unique piece of my master's was we're doing blood draws in, throughout the study. But for my master's, it was um, stress reactivity to this high fat meal. So including the component of diet and nutrition and how we think about um, immune responses after the uh, after essentially a very stressful life event. So the death of a spouse. And I, I really like that component because meal choices and everything about who, like how you're eating and things like that really do change after that loss. So it felt very relevant to what the, the real life changes in health behaviors and things like that, that people are experiencing in that time. Wow. And how, how did like going back in time, how did you first become interested in pursuing a PhD in, in psychology and in this area of research? Yeah. So the, the person that I do, um, I, I do some of my science communication work with Dr. Nancy Weinberger. She was my, an undergrad, um, advisor that I had who really got me excited about psychology. I had been in like microbiome labs and was doing, uh, a lot of different types of work and thinking I wanted it to be pre-med and all of these things until I got to work on psychology projects and really realized like, not only is it more in like the health psychology world, but more really in the social psychology world and, and social relationships component. Um, so I, I really credit a lot of like, especially at this point, just continuing to pursue this, this line of work to, to getting that, those early experiences in college with someone who made me really excited about the work and where it was more, it really was more just, we're curious about these questions. We like 
hanging out together and doing research and we can do that. And, and that's the piece that I keep holding on to now of like, this is the fun part of this kind of line of career is, is getting to ask the kinds of questions that you're interested in and finding collaborators who you're like excited to work with. So now in grad school, I try to do the same thing with grad students that I'm good friends with. And it's just very fun to work with people like at your own level or postdocs and things like that who are close to you and you can get to learn from. I, I really enjoyed just finding different ways to work with the people that I just want to spend time with. <laughs> I love that. And Dr. Weinberger is also, is she your co-host for the SciT? Yes. Yeah, for okay. Yeah, can yeah. So that, a little bit about yeah. SciT and kind of what some of the goals are there? Definitely. This this was something that Dr. Weinberger and I talked about when I was an undergrad and has always been something that uh, that she's done, which is communicating more of the research to people who are really actually applying that kind of research. So, for example, when I was an undergrad, she was doing more child development kind of research and and developmental psychology work. And so she was doing the normal journal publications and things like that. But she would also write um, pieces for publications like Texas Child Care Quarterly, which was really people who were involved in in child care um, who were reading it, really clinical, more clinical people than researchers. And so I think that that was sort of the early hint of what SciT would become, which is just this goal of, of connecting researchers and the people who are actually in the positions to use that kind of research. And not just to say like, here's the research, you should use it, but but also really wanting to see what kind of questions do you wish we were asking? What pieces are we missing? Um, what populations are you working with that are not mirrored in this research at all? Um, so, so just finding ways to have more of those conversations because we get I know in, in my field, I, I feel really distant sometimes from, and working with participants helps, but I feel distant from the people who are actually in the position to actually help people. And so, so sort of getting closer to bringing the research closer to the people who can actually take it out into the world and be helping people and also getting their feedback and really setting the example for the different ways you can apply this kind of work because psychology is so easy to apply to, to so many different career paths. So it's, it's nice too, in my mind, I, I'm getting to see examples of all the different ways we can apply these things. And then also hopefully people who are the younger people and, and older people too, just the idea of, of finding the different ways that we can use this kind of research in, in the real world to actually help people beyond just like publications. Wow. That's awesome. So when you started this channel and, you know, kind of started down this path, how has all of your learnings from, you know, this year plus changed how you think about the field of, of research and kind of what you've been doing leading up to that point? I think a lot of it for me centers just around how our training isn't set up to, to really have us do these things and, and, and have us be talking to more than just the people who speak our language in terms of all of the jargon that's involved in any subfield of any discipline. Right. And so I think I, I feel like I have less tolerance for jargon now and more just because I'm like, I know when I read this paper, I have to do jump through like five hoops to actually tell someone else about this. So I think for me, it's helped my writing a lot to just be able to step back and say, like when I make a SciComm video, I often, I go through and I'll do the script. I'll go back through and write it up and, and go through and say, okay, I need to explain these different things. But then even then, even in the editing process, I'm like, okay, well, you did, you still didn't explain this. So just finding all of the layers of how many different ways you can explain something, but also um, I think it's just been really good practice to be more efficient at 
communicating these things without using the big jargon, big jargony or small jargony words that just make it more or small jargony abbreviations (laughs) that just make it like more complicated. So I think it's for me, like looking at the field, it's more that there are so many different models and those are all great, but like, how do they matter to people? And just saying that in a way that's not complicated. I really, I value that like a lot more than I think I did early on when, when you're like, you just want to learn all the jargon. So you're in that in group. Right. But now I'm like, this in-group is really small and not necessarily um, doing all of the things that I want to be able to do in my career. Yeah. What are some of your goals with, with your channel and, you know, just looking ahead, what are, what are, what are some of the things you're hoping to accomplish with it? Do you plan on, you know, continuing this for a while or until, you know, you move on to like a faculty position? Yeah, I think my right now, what I know is I really love having um, videos available for any paper that I, especially for first author papers. So things that I know I'm putting out there into the world, I want research wise, I want those to always be available in an easy, like five minute video that you can watch and get the main takeaway um, and kind of know how the research was done. So I think that's, that's the most central part of my channel is, is, is really making sure that my research is clear and you can take away and know exactly what I'm doing. And that, and then along with that, wanting to support the people who are also in my research area or whose research I admire or who I come up seeing their research and I want to talk about it, want to share it. So I, the other layer is that I really want to be able to support people who like me are like early career and it, who it helps to have more coverage and like an easy link to share. So just finding people whose research I want to highlight who are more early career and potentially going to be on the job market soon or in the next like five years. I think that that's uh, what I hope for the future to continue is just amplifying the voices of people who are younger in the different fields, because it's also just inspiring to see younger people doing science. And I didn't see very much of that at all um, in terms of when I was younger and, and, and same with sort of femininity in science. I think that that's another place where like, I like making everything pink and, you know, just things like that to, to be like, like femininity and science go together. And that's, that's cool. They don't always have to, but they totally can. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that about your channel. I often, when I'm doing the background research for a guest, I pick out a color for them based on like some of the things I see on their websites and everything. And I was like, she likes pink. So I picked pink for your background. <laughs> um, it was very upfront. I like that. So I want to jump into your research because you had several papers come out in 2021, which congratulations on that. And they really cover quite a bit of material here. And I, I want to talk about a couple of them and just get a sense. I mean, you you spoke already that you try to do these primers um, for your papers on your site. So I recommend anyone listening to go check those out if you want to learn more about Ryan's research. Um, but there's a couple papers that stood out to me that you published recently. So there was one on longitudinal changes in HRV across pregnancy and postpartum. Yeah. Can you share what some of the key findings were from that paper? Yeah, absolutely. So that that's one area that I'm really excited about. Um, I I am I love pregnancy and postpartum and that kind that area of research. And so this was the first paper that I really got to work on and collaborate with Dr. Lisa Christian on in that in that stress and health during pregnancy and postpartum question. 
And again, really interested in the idea of how that like relationship with your close partner or spouse um, in that time of pregnancy specifically, as we know, that's a very big life shift where obviously that partner is really important in making sure that you have the resources that you need and the support that you need. So knowing that 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 without that support, that that can be a really like even more heightened, stressful time. So we were interested in seeing how people's autonomic nervous system, heart rate, things like that, um, rebounded after post, after giving birth. So there are normal changes that happen, obviously, once you get pregnant to maintain that fetus and make sure that you can healthily maintain that fetus. And some of those changes are really heavy heavily influencing the autonomic nervous system. And so one marker that we can use for autonomic nervous system function is heart rate variability or HRV. And so we were interested in who's going to have a sort of more normal, whatever that means, because at the time there's really not, so I should back up to say, whatever there is in stress and health research, there is so much less around pregnancy and postpartum, which isn't super fair because it's a time of intense immune and autonomic nervous system changes. And so to me, it's like the most fascinating time to study because when else do you get this giant stress test to your whole body in that way? So I'm like fascinated by it and appalled by how little work there is in that area. And Dr. Lisa Christian is doing a lot of the really great work there. So we were interested in that sort of postpartum rebound and heart rate variability. And generally you want higher heart rate variability and lower is a sign that you might have more trouble regulating um, emotions, things like that. And also maintaining um, homeostasis just within your body with different nervous, uh, different um, bodily systems. So there's a normal dip in heart rate variability across pregnancy. And so we weren't studying that dip as much as the trajectory of rebound after. And so what we essentially found is that most people come back to normal, what they were probably pre-pregnancy, although we didn't exactly study that part within about the first three to four months after giving birth. But we found that people who were in worse quality relationships had lower heart rate variability than we would expect at both four and eight months postpartum. So we're showing a really, really a little bit of a difference in how that autonomic nervous system rebounds after this giant stress test of pregnancy and then labor and showing how relationship quality might play into that. And uh, to me, the, the, the biggest component of this is, again, that how important close partner relationships are to our health in these different times of, of intense stress. So the times that I focus on in my work are pregnancy, postpartum, and, and around the death of a spouse as well. Um, so it's interesting because from like a relationship perspective, it's like you're bringing a different, a new relationship into this world or you're losing a relationship. Right. And in both of those contexts, the people, the support that you have around you to help you navigate that is really important in a lot of different ways. And so I really like trying to understand how our relationships can help us navigate these stressful times and hopefully help us to really stay at what our normal is, whatever that is um, on these different measures. So that one was really exciting to me because it's an area that I really want to do more work in. And seeing how we can leverage these studies that are really intense. So this, this was five, we saw these pregnant and postpartum women five times after five times from third trimester to a year postpartum to, to get this information. 
So it's also just a big learning experience for me in terms of what goes into these kinds of studies and recruitment for those people and things like that. Fascinating. So I have a lot of questions around this, Um, but before I dive into that, would you say that the general theme or thesis of your work is that strong relationships allow our bodies to navigate instances of trauma or stress or duress at a, at a better rate than people without strong relationships? Is that kind of the thesis? Yeah, I would almost break it down into sort of two, two separate pieces, which is one, how past stress affects future stress reactivity. So we can also think of pregnancy, like I was saying, like pregnancy is kind of this giant stress test. So there might be other features outside of your relationship, right? But maybe related to early relationships with your parents or whoever was your primary caregiver at that time. And that's where it sort of goes into the second piece. So so the first piece is, is that how past stress affects your reactivity to future stress. And then the second piece is then how your, how you navigate your relationships, how you view your relationships. Can you get support from your relationships? If there are support, if there is a supportive person there, can you safely access them? Can you safely ask for help? Do you have a, do you, have you been taught that you can safely ask for help and that someone will help you? So I think it goes, I'm really interested in current relationships, but also how early life relationships with our parents or caretakers have also sort of shaped how we respond and navigate when we are faced with stress. Do we think we can go to someone and that they'll actually help us? Or have we had so many experiences where we needed help, but did not get it or expressed uh, distress and did not get someone who was relieving that distress because then we we don't know that we can go and ask someone for help. We might think that it might just make it worse, right? So I think that I'm really interested in like the stress reactivity piece in the context of these past and current close relationships. And so break down how these studies are conducted for us because it sounds like there's a component that probably has to do with survey questions around relationships. And then there's a component that's some kind of physiological readout that might come from markers in the blood or, you know, heart rate variability. I'm imagining the people in the study wear some kind of heart rate monitor. Can you walk us through what the components are and kind of the different data types that you're tying together here? Definitely. And I'll go, I'll go with um, sort of the more bereavement research, but it's very similar what we've done in the pregnancy and postpartum work as well. Um, So it's, it's really intense. And that's what I came from a smaller school, a smaller school with less intense research. And I, it's, it's just remarkable to me. It has been like, these visits are so long and, and to get people who are excited to be part of the research is also really rewarding. So especially in our bereavement work, there's a lot of times, um, for the people who are bereaved, um, there's a sense that you're do you're, you've experienced this loss, but you're able to do something with it, right? Find meaning in that loss by giving back to others because you want to be able to help people who are in that position in the future. So that's been really rewarding. And I say that because when I, when I say what's part of some of these studies, you're going to be like, why would people do this? And I think that's, that's, so that's an important like uh, context for it too. So 
this kind of work takes a lot of hours. So survey wise, it's about an hour to two hours of survey questionnaires. And that happens at the end of the visit. But we'll often do, we'll have a blood draw, at least one blood draw. Um, We'll have them, like you said, wear a heart rate monitor and we'll monitor heart rate and heart rate variability for um, during a relaxation period. And we also might monitor both um, immune responses by blood draw and also that autonomic nervous nervous system activity in response to a stressor. So the kind of data we collect is both at rest and in response to social evaluative stress. So things like if we bring someone into the lab and have them prepare a a job interview for whatever their hypothetical dream job is. And then they come into a room that has two people who they've never met in white coats and a camera on them. And they need to give a five minute job interview and the people aren't going to give them any, and I've, I've had to be this person and it's stressful on the other end too, because it's really hard not to give people a smile and feedback and, and just the, like, you're doing okay. So you're essentially instructed not to give the feedback of you're doing okay. Right. You're just giving a, which sucks to be on the receiving end of. So that's really stressful. And that's one component of it. And then the second part is much worse, which is counting backwards from, I think it's like 2036 um, in steps of 17. And you think you're on camera with people giving no positive feedback. So it's this really intense social stressor that is intense, but it's not so much more intense than you would expect or experience in a day. So it's this nice sort of middle ground of, it absolutely sucks to do. But at the same time, it's the kind of stress that we experience daily or weekly anyway. So it's not ethically to the point where we can't do this kind of work. But a lot of times, and I often think too, it's like we're really stressing these people out. Um, But again, that goes back to the question of if you've experienced this past stress, what happens to you when you face future stress? So that's the kind of experimental way that we stress people out to see how they're responding to that kind of stress. So that's one of my favorite kinds of data that we get, because then you have inflammatory responses in the two hours after you experience this really particular kind of social stress. And so that's, that's one important component that I just want to mention, because I, I would never have known about any of this before grad school, especially that component. And so then the other piece is just doing this over time. So doing these kinds of pieces, um, not necessarily stressing people out, but doing multiple measurements throughout a year. So all of the surveys that might change over time in terms of depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, um, relation, relationship status, or, um, sort of a hierarchy of relationships, like who do you go to if you're distressed? Who is the closest to you? Who is that different now versus five years ago? Um, those are, most of the types of data that we collect in addition to some more cognitive tasks like measures of inhibition and things like that. So I've, I've just been amazed by how like intensive the study visits are. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds intense. So, and as far as the inflammatory response, is that like cytokines or what, what are some of the readouts there? Yeah. So we mostly focus on, um, on pro-inflammatory cytokines. So the 
there we do both at rest. So really we can just think of that as your immune system's response to stress. How much inflammation do you produce? And we can think of that response to stress, both in the sense of like what I'm saying when we actually stress you out, but we can also just sort of stress out T cells and things like that to see how many pro-inflammatory cytokines you actually produce at that in that way. So there are a couple of different ways that we can um, sort of get at that question of under stress, because that sort of more mimics what would happen to your immune system in the case of an infection. So that's really, th- that kind of work is more of interest too in, in COVID times yeah. versus just inflammatory response when you're just sitting in the lab at rest um, is, is less interesting to us sometimes. <laughs> I love that you're combining these, you know, kind of behavior data types, survey information, relationships with actual you know, cellular or molecular readouts. It's, I think it's such a important intersection for our ability to understand what's really going on. Right. Absolutely. And one other thing there, because you're mentioning um, along in terms of other sort of immune things that we look at is um, latent virus status. So we look at sort of how reactivated a latent virus might be with someone. Um, so the idea that if you get um, like herpes viruses, you you will have them in a latent state for your the rest of your life. And so just seeing um, when those are reactivating, which indicates less cellular control over your immune system. So that's one another piece that we look at around the death of a spouse. And we've, we've sort of shown differences there between, so you, you have this, um, more reactivation of like Epstein-Barr virus, right. Which is associated with somatic symptoms like, um, like migraines and, um, things like that and stomach aches and things like that. And so there's that association generally between you have this, this virus and this response to this virus, and you might have these symptoms, right. But what we found was that at three months after the death of the spouse, there was, um, there was only a significant strong relationship between the virus response and the somatic symptoms for people who were rated that relationship that they had just lost as being higher quality. So when people were rating, saying that they, that the person that who had just died, that their spouse who had just died, that they weren't as in as close of a relationship. It wasn't as high quality of a relationship. We didn't see that connection between the actual like cellular level that we're measuring and the symptoms that people are reporting. So you're only seeing those symptoms with people who really had that higher quality relationship that they were reporting. And of course we get then into like at three months after the death of a spouse, are you seeing rose, is it like rosy glasses kind of a thing? Um, So there's a lot of questions too, I think in in our line of work around sort of the question of what's happening right before the stressor that we're studying, right? So what was that relationship actually like? It's hard to really know when you're asking someone three months after they've lost that relationship. Okay. I want to ask a couple general questions around this field because I knew that there was a level of this intersection of like molecular phenotyping, you know, with behavior, but I wasn't I'm not familiar with the field at all. Like I'm not familiar with the extent of it. So I want to ask a curiosity question that I have. Has anyone done a study comparing how, like what happens to our bodies and how we physically react to a screen versus interacting with an actual person? That's a really good question. I'm trying to think. So I can tell you that, 
there are a couple of different directions that my mind goes with that. One is that the stress test that I told you about earlier. So they have now in pandemic times validated that to be accurate over Zoom. So that's one thing that we can say, we can stress people out over Zoom just fine. Like, just like we would normally. Um, wow. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Shocking. <Groundbreaking. Yeah. laughs> more stressed um, really out over Zoom, for, I think. I, I know. I feel like my baseline for opening up Zoom, <laughs> Zoom is like, ah. Yeah. Um, so that's one piece. Um, I, but then the other, the other piece, which is not as much on the like research stress side is more like the quality of relationship, which I think is what you're getting at some here, which I'm less familiar with this line of work, but I think the, the general idea of, are you getting the same benefits of the connection of a relationship if it's virtual versus in person? And I, I would so I don't have a 100% answer on this, so we can, I can. Yeah, no uh, worries. I just anyone, like, this is just my mind, my no, mind yeah. wondering things. Anyone can correct me on this. I, and sorry, I, my mind is also going in a couple of different directions, but um, I, I think that there's a, there's a big piece one in just the sense of loneliness. So, so the question of sort of what's your actual social network is versus your experience of being lonely. And I, I would think that that kind of plays into if into this question of sort of who can get the benefits of these virtual relationships versus not. Um, Because if you're sort of generally more able, and I don't say more able in a way that is, saying that there's anything wrong with someone who is not as like, quote, able to access and navigate different types of relationships, but there are different life circumstances that give us all better or worse ability to sort of, again, just like ask for help, ask for when we need that connection. So for a lot of people, I think having that touch point of running into people, of seeing people accidentally, of being in the same neighborhood as someone, that that just naturally prompts um, a lot of the pieces that you might not reach out to people for if you're just in your own house and having that virtual relationship. But on the flip side, the I, I can speak from the perspective of of someone around someone with an intense chronic illness is that in the context of when you, it's much harder to leave the house, those virtual relationships can be so incredibly meaningful. And we definitely see that there's a lot of benefit to the virtual relationships. I think that the question is how, how much does it really compare to the in-person? And it's harder for me to know that exact answer. Yeah. Makes sense. I want to talk about another paper you published this year, I think, which was anything he can do, she can do better. Children's attitudes about gender and occupations. Um, I think maybe I got the title wrong there. Is that the title? Yeah, yeah that sounds, sounds right. <laughs> Interesting study. Can you talk about how you and Dr. Weinberger set up this experiment and kind of what the key question was and what what the findings were. Yeah. And I, I love this one because it was, so this was something that it was a poster, like it was an in-class project that I had to do for a class, my sophomore year of college. And then it was something that we felt that Dr. Weinberg and I just wanted to do together. And so we just followed up on it in my senior year. And that's what has just been published. 
And so it's really special to me because it was just a project that I, again, I was like, I just want to spend time with this person and be able to do fun research and ask these questions that we're both interested in. And I only knew we were both interested in it because of this class project that we just kept talking about, which was the original class project was like gendered media messages. And that was what I was really interested in is just what messages are we getting about like what men and what women should do. And so that was the general idea of what went into our um, question around children, because seeing how early people cement these ideas about what is and isn't for them and what that the implications of that for what career paths they go down. So we were really interested in how potentially showing an example of someone, a a woman in a counter stereotypical career. So something that we don't associate with women as, 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 um, as much as men. So in in our case, it was um, looking at a woman firefighter who was awesome. And this was through um, a PBS SciGirls video of this woman named Kate, who was just, she's a real woman who's this incredible firefighter and does this outreach work to, again, show examples of women in these different careers. And so our, our question was, around sort of what are the attitudes that children around 10 years old have about what jobs women and men should do. And then the question of, okay, if we give this video and we show you this woman being really good at her job, and then there's also a man in this video who's like doing his job, but he's not the focus of the video at all. So you're really just seeing the this exemplar of this woman named Kate. And so then asking sort of what should Kate do? What should this other guy, Jeremiah, do? Should Kate be the fire chief? Should Jeremiah be the fire chief? You don't really have any evidence of anything about Jeremiah. So we're just really wondering, like, did you absorb that Kate was really good at her job? And we saw across that the children in our study who were about, like, again, like 10 years old um, in Rhode Island, generally had really flexible attitudes about what men and women should do. But we saw that, and, and they did for Kate and for Jeremiah as well. Like, Kate was um, rated really well for being a fire chief, for providing medical help, all of these things. But what we saw that sort of replicates other um, work in this area is that there was a lot less flexibility for certain careers and certain uh, male careers that are associated with being feminine. So the essentially that the punishment for a, a man being more feminine was stronger than for a woman being more masculine, which when we think about like where, like the hierarchy of, okay, if men are higher in the hierarchy than women, then you have more punishment for going down in some way, right? By being feminine than going up by being masculine is, is kind of the, the like, rationale there. So in our example, in our study specifically, it was the idea that uh, men shouldn't be a ballerina. Men shouldn't be ballerinas. That was, that was universally in the study. People were like, no, this isn't, this isn't really what we think men should be doing. So that was um, one of the main takeaways. And, and we just, we were really hopeful coming out of that study and happy about just asking that question of how does media representation of women in these counter stereotypical careers really help, hopefully help um, girls see that they can be in those positions and see that being a firefighter isn't not for me or so is for me. And same with things like math, right? So not getting the association early on of, well, math is for boys. I'm a girl. So math isn't for me. And so that was, that was a big motivation behind that study. Was the result surprising to you? I was surprised by how flexible people, the children's attitudes were 
but we also didn't have any flip condition. So that was sort of where we, where we wished in hindsight that we had had a different example, just, just so that we could compare and contrast. If you had a, something, a video, something like that, where it is highlighting more of the man, then do you still see that you're appraising the woman as being good at her job? Right. So the question of, is it, are, are you only like saying women are good in this role? If you're seeing someone be really good in this role, because that that's good, but it's still not, we need you to just think that people, women are going to be good at this job because you don't necessarily have any reason to think women should not be good at this job. But I mean, the, the aspect that there was a more explicit attitude about men doing traditionally women perceived roles. So I, I'll go to uh, my, one of my first classes with Dr. Weinberger, her first name is Nancy. And she always just talked about how like the insult was being called a Nancy. You know, it, it was like you, the insult when you're a little kid is like being called girly, being told like you're like, so thinking back to just like the playground insults, it, it wasn't as surprising as I think for us, the component of just, um, we weren't as surprised that there was this punishment of boys or men being more feminine. And I think that that's also why I, I come back to like, I don't like that there's this punishment of femininity or like this, there's such a lack of link between like femininity and these other um, career options as well. Sure. Have you, have you and Dr. Weinberger worked on anything recently? Just IT stuff. So that's been what we've been able to really connect on because we've stayed friends in, in communication since. We've stayed friends and, okay, sorry, let me hold on. Is that your dog? Yes. Oh, Some cute. Grabbing them up. What <laughs> kind of dogs? Um, I have, uh, like, they're ba- both, like, little poodly things that are really cute. cute. Yeah, we have two dogs. They're they're away right now. We're leaving uh, for the weekend tomorrow. So, oh, awesome! It's like the house is too quiet right now. (laughs) That's the hardest when you're like just about to leave for a trip and they're not there. Yeah, or like just get back. (laughs) (laughs) So okay, so I feel like as far as oh, I did have a question around the design of these studies. What's like an ideal number of study participants? And do you base that on, you know, statistical power? In theory, I mean, the, the, I mean, as best as possible, but the practicality of doing this kind of work really does get in the way sometimes. So with, um, I think the like common knowledge of what is acceptable depends a lot on the different types of analyses that you're doing. So I would, I would just throw out like about a hundred will probably be okay. Especially if you're doing multiple, um, especially if you're doing multiple time points, which is what we're usually doing, but to get to that hundred, it's thousands of calls potentially. Right. So to find a hundred bereaved spouses who are willing to participate in a year long study and come in person for four to seven hour long visits. It takes so much labor just to get people into the lab. So I think that the place that we run up into um, just the practicality of this kind of work is both in 
the recruitment effort, and then also in the cost. So I really like heart rate variability analyses because you can do those with just a good polar, um, like waist, a polar, like waist strap, chest strap, chest strap. That's what I'm looking for. Um, a polar chest strap. So it's in comparison to, um, immune markers, it's just so much cheaper. So as an like early career person thinking about starting a lab, I really, I really have been considering just the cost of doing these kinds of studies. So for me and for anyone who's interested in this kind of work, um, I think that uh, markers of heart rate variability can be a really um, accessible way to get into it. I see. And so how do, how do you balance all of that recruitment effort? Do you advertise these studies or are you making all of those calls yourself? So with, so we have a lot of undergrads who we work with. Um, so for, these different projects, we've probably had up to 15 undergraduates who will be working with us, helping with running studies, um, running like running visits, recruitment efforts, um, all of that kind of outreach stuff, in addition to a grad student or two and a project manager. So it's a really, it's a much larger lab experience than I'd ever had before now. And that's what too, if for people who are looking at this kind of work, it really is if you end up being in a professor role, it's you have a small business and maybe even a big business, right? It's it can be a lot to navigate, just the all of the administrative pieces, the budgeting and things like that. So we do, um, like you're saying, for um, recruitment, we do flyers and things like that. We do, I, and I, before I was ever doing science communication work, I, the first kind of practice I got for this was doing recruitment events at the YMCA's across Houston. So I just go and talk to the older adults about the work that we're doing and try to see if they can help us find people that they can put us in touch with to get in our studies. And it, 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 it I like that piece because you're giving at that point, you're at least also giving back to the groups that you're working with. So we're able to go and, and go back to them over and over again and keep presenting what work we've done since then. And, and maybe more people are interested or maybe there's a different study, but we can keep going back to say, this is what the results were from that last thing that we talked to you about. So we can kind of build these relationships with different people, mostly at different YMCAs um, throughout Houston. And so does most of the funding come from the NIH or where? Okay. Yeah, mostly NIH. Um, we haven't had a ton of luck with NSF, um, but NIH has been our main source of funding. And you're, are you planning on wrapping up your PhD soon or where are you at in the process? <laughs> Have you scheduled your defense? <laughs> I, so I, I am proposing, um, uh, the week after Thanksgiving. So very soon. And then, um, yeah, fingers crossed. I'm, I'm hoping to defend in the spring. So we'll, we'll see if everything goes according to plan. There's a lot of logistical pieces before, then, <laughs> as, as you can imagine with these kinds of studies. So it's, um, so sometime next year. Yeah. Exciting. And so you'll be proposing your, your date to your committee soon you said yeah. and mm -hmm. then you'll be writing your dissertation which i imagine will include many of your published papers that you have yeah so this one it's it's on the same project um which is is around so my dissertation will be around the um time after the death of a spouse um, looking at both the bereaved people that we have in our study and then we also have a group of matched control individuals who are matched on age, sex, and body mass index because 
We want to make sure that the immune markers that we get from the bereaved and controls are as close to what would be similar based on um, the characteristics of that person. So the unique piece for me is doing these childhood interviews around like what I was saying, what your early life experiences were with the different people that you had um, parents or caretakers as a child and how people were really able to or not respond to your distress. And so that that piece um, is the data that I'm collecting right now and will be part of my dissertation ultimately. Exciting. And what are you thinking as far as what's next for you? Are you looking for postdoc positions? Are you planning on pursuing a career in academia? Yeah, I I am doing, um, I'm looking at postdoc positions and then I'm also just foraying out into the job market a little bit, half for practice, half for real, um, and just getting the, all of those materials ready. So I've always, I've always had a, um, like, I like practicing things a lot. So like, I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to be a teacher one day. So I better like practice communication. I'm like, well, I'll be really applying for jobs. I better apply for a job now. Um, so I, I am keeping like all options open and I have a couple of, um, uh, someone for postdoc opportunity that I'm really excited about. Um, and, Again, I think that this this time is a lot of just uncertainty in terms of, and I mean, you know, pandemic and things like that. But it's it's interesting. It just reminds me so much of the time, like when you've applied to grad school, but you're just waiting to hear back to hear, like, am I going to this place in this state or this place in this state, right? Uh, so that's I'm kind of in the grad school version of that, of just putting feelers out and seeing what happens for the next year. Yeah, the postdoc search is really kind of a fun parallel, I think, to the grad school search. And it can be, you know, you get the the travel visits, hopefully, and you can meet the different labs. And I definitely enjoyed that experience when I was going through it. It was fun. Yeah. 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 So are you looking all over? It sounds like. Yeah, I, I definitely take, I've definitely taken this time just to step back and see what, what pieces am I really really excited about what, and, and like with postdoc, it's really the, what training piece do you want next? And so uh, a lot of what I've been looking at is, is around pregnancy and postpartum, because that, that hasn't been something I've been able to directly work on while I've been able to do writing on and things like that. But I, my lab doesn't do as much directly with um, people during pregnancy or postpartum. So that that's the area of stress and health that I'm really excited about um, continuing in potentially in postdoc. I love that because it's such an important part of our experience as humans, but it's also such an understudied area of research. And, you know, I just hope that we're going to have more information around pregnancy and postpartum, like in the coming years, because it's just abysmal. Like when you go into PubMed and start to try to understand some of these things, um, it's just there's very little information out there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and growing up in Texas too, like Texas has a, a very bad disparity in terms of maternal mortality rate um, for black women, especially. And so I think that that has always sort of been at the front of my mind too, around that we, it just wasn't, it's like not, these things aren't like paid attention to in the way it feels like they should be paid attention to. So I really want to pay attention to them. <laughs> Awesome. And so you didn't answer my question about pursuing a career in academia. Are you yes. Yeah. I, I, I am. And at the same time, I don't think academia has to be the end all be all. So I really love um, 
I love the communication piece as well. So I, I think that there's certain aspects of what I've seen of the job market experience that I think that divorcing myself from the idea that like academia has to be the end all be all feels really freeing. And so I, I'm very open to different like career trajectories at this point. I think academic is the most likely, but I, I a hundred percent know that there are opportunities that I would jump for that are non-academic. Interesting. Yeah. I get the sense from the way you talk about your research and the kind of exploratory nature of your studies and your collaborations that you really love that kind of academic mind of being able to ask all of these interesting questions and go after them with kind of a lot of freedom that you might not get uh, in like a traditional industry role, for instance. So I hope totally. And I hope you consider that. Oh yeah. Definitely. You know, and I, for me too, it's, it's still like, I love working with undergrads and I'm sure I would feel the same about grad students. So I, I think that being in a position where that, that I can do a lot more mentorship and write, like mentorship and writing are my favorite things, like mentorship, writing research, that kind of stuff. So I think just, just finding like the right fit for that would be awesome. Exciting. Are you currently recruiting for any studies that you want to mention on the podcast? I can say that one study that we're working on that I'm I'm doing right now is around um, Alzheimer's, uh, family caregivers of patients with Alzheimer's or related dementia. So if anyone is involved in caretaking for someone with uh, Alzheimer's or related dementia, we definitely have a study that pays, I believe, up to $250 and it's completely remote. So you do not have to be in Houston. Um and I can, I can give you the link for, for that website. So if anyone's interested, we can, we can drop that in. Great. Anything else you want to touch on? I usually like to open up just in case there's other things we didn't get a chance to talk about. Well, I just love, I just love your um, podcast and what you're doing again, just in terms of like the representation of seeing women in different um, STEM careers. I, I, I really appreciate the work that you have been doing in this year. So it's oh, it's super cool and I, I I like again I like watching it and getting inspired so it, it's really cool to me just to think about like younger Ryan getting to see these different um mediums of of women in science so it's awesome yeah yeah and if you have any suggestions for people you know to have on on future interviews I'm always yeah, open awesome. to suggestions awesome. send them my way <laughs> yeah, perfect it was funny because the company I work for we just hired um a new CEO. Okay. And one of my coworkers was like, Oh, you should have Matt on your podcast. And I was like, you know, Matt would be the first man that I would interview on the lady scientist podcast. Yeah. Um, it's just funny that people like haven't really, you know, gotten that I only interview women, which I feel like it's kind of nice to just have that niche space and amplify women's stories and women's voices in a space where we often mainly hear from men within the research community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that that I'm just coming back to sort of um, the, the people that we end up working with in, in our lab a lot, which is again, like death of a spouse, but also sort of caregiving in general. And, and I've just been thinking so much about women in science and the intersection of women in science and, and caregiving and what, and how much those, and how, just how 
freaking difficult the the intersection of those roles is. I mean, especially pandemic. Um, so I, I when as you're saying, like the women's stories piece, I think that 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 really resonates with me and and with things that participants have said too, just around um, just around navigating caregiving and action and working at the same time. So I, I I just think it's really important what you're doing. Yeah, it's been, you know, obviously in a way I'm lucky that my work during the pandemic, I don't have kids yet. And so I didn't have that extra challenge of, you know, caregiving and I was able to work, but I see so many women on Twitter talking about leaving academia and how hard it's been. And I've even reached out to a couple to see if they would want to talk about it. And, you know, it's such a hard time that people, understandably, it's really hard to speak about things like that when you're going through it. But it's, it's such an important piece of the conversation. And I know so many people are trying to overcome, you know, well, why aren't there more women PIs and women, you know, at, at the executive level and all of these things. And I feel like the childcare component is such a big component of that, you know, and it's just not discussed enough, you know? Yeah. And, and when I think about sort of my career in academia, that to me is like, it is such a big piece that it doesn't feel good. Like it just, it feels like you're, it, it feels like there's this implicit, like you're compromising or something baked into a lot of it. And, and just that the speed of the type of work never sort of slows. And, and so I think that it's, I've just been thinking so much about like just the boundary setting that you have to do to be able to actually take a maternity leave or paternity leave or just family leave, however. And, and I, I don't know what to do because what you're saying is exactly correct. Because when you're in that time, it's so difficult to, I mean, you don't have the time to talk about it. You don't, yeah, you don't have the time to talk about it, but at the same time, I just want to know how people are navigating those, those experiences and, and fitting again, like having children or, or caregiving in general um, into their identity as an academic or as a scientist, because it, it just feels like they butt heads so much. Um, from, from what I've seen. Yeah. Well, and especially when your kids, you know, suddenly they don't have school and you're having to teach them and make up for all of that enrichment that's missing in their lives. And I just, you know, I feel for all the parents out there who have had to live through this. Like, Mm -hmm. I just, I can't imagine how hard it's been for all of them, (laughs) you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I think that I just think about that too, like the, the piece of like having kids, but then also potentially having like parents that you need to care for and things like that. And just who that role falls on is often like the daughter within the family or something like that. And, yeah. and so it almost just feeling like this pull from either direction of like children and parents. And, mm-hmm. and so even if you don't have children, you, you're, you probably have a parent. So, and yeah, and yeah so that, that piece of like caregiving in academia, I just can't get out of my head and I have not ever been able to get out of my head since starting grad school. Um, we have, well, luckily in my department, we have a, a couple of women who are just incredible. And, um, Dr. Margaret Beyer in my department, she, I think she did her job talk here while she was pregnant. And this was a while ago, but that's one of the stories that kind of has been passed around in my department and seeing the examples of, of, 
women in my own space who have sort of navigated it has been awesome, but I just, I want to see like even more. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's so, yeah. it's so important. So helpful to have mentors like that and, and people around you to navigate that space, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That wraps up my interview with Ryan Brown. Ryan, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. We love to hear from graduate students. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't already, please click subscribe and leave us a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. You can support this show on our Patreon or by purchasing some merch, which is linked on our website, ladiescientistpodcast.com. Thanks so much for supporting the show.